Hello and welcome to this episode of Podcast 1201. You're joined by Ollie Warwin, your host, and Callum Watt. Good afternoon, Ollie. And also Bradley Orsop. Hello, both. Okay, fantastic. And um, we've got some. We've got two different stories for you today. Uh, we're going to discuss a Labour conference, which will be taking place um, next next week, from the 25th until the 29th, um, and everything that goes along with it. And we'll also uh, touch on the AUKUS uh, alliance between Australia, the UK, and the US as well. Um, so to kick us off straight into conference, we've already been uh, seeing some um, what will what we can expect from conference and there's been some official documents as well to the structure of how it will be. Um, as well as that, just to frame it, uh, we've seen some controversy around Starmer and um, Le- and uh, David Evans, um, where they have um, suspended um, and put investigations into the chair of uh, Young Labour, Jess Barnard as well. Um, so they are looking uh, to be quite they're kind of trying to limit uh, what what will be discussed at, at Labour. Um, so I guess the question is, what what can we expect to uh, get out of, of conference? Uh, we'll go to Callum. Well, as I said in the last podcast, Ollie, I'm hoping that it's going to be uh, a positive conference where we will see uh, a, a lot of po- positive policy come forward. Um, interestingly, uh, uh, just to... Uh, pick up on the Jess Bernard thing. Uh, I think that the investigation against her was withdrawn uh, after a considerable amount of uh, public outcry, um, uh, as uh, which the uh, investigation was spurred, of course, by her uh, calling out transphobia online, and uh, that was complained about, and the party reacted to it uh, wrongly, I think, and now correctly withdrawn that investigation um but in terms of the conference itself as i say i'm hoping for a positive one where we're going to see policy come forward um the most notable thing regarding policy at conference those that happened so far has been the conference arrangements committee uh, ruling out a motion on the green new deal uh, ru- ruling it out of order now just to explain uh the CAC, the Conference Arrangements Committee, is a democratically elected body, so it's elected uh, in, it's basically a smaller version of the National Executive Committee uh, in the sense that it's elected members from uh, CLPs, Parliamentary Labour Party, trade unions and so on, um, and they decide on the uh, the agenda for a conference effectively. They decide which motions are in order, which order they're going to be debated, which speeches are going to go when. Uh, I assume they book the venue as well. Um, and they have decided to rule at least one of the Green New Deal motions uh, sponsored by Momentum out of order. Um, the motion they said was a little too broad because it was covering uh, effectively every area of uh, public policy, uh, talking about employment and healthcare as well as uh, the the environment. Um, And they said that this amounted to effectively writing a manifesto. And I think from that, that the message is very clear, if there was any leadership involvement in that at all, the message from that is clear that the leadership doesn't want policy to come from the grassroots. They want to be able to announce it themselves. 
And okay, so I mean, to some extent, maybe it doesn't matter where it comes from, um, but it is a little bit worrying for uh, party democracy. Um, and one would have thought as well, given that there were many, many people who backed Keir Starmer in the last leadership election who believed in the Green New Deal. Um, if I were Keir Starmer, I would see this as a fantastic opportunity uh, to shore up that support and to um, support a new Green New Deal, because, of course, as we've discussed many, many times before, there's no bigger issue than climate change. Um, and that does require a comprehensive, holistic response involving uh, all different areas of public policy. Um, it is still possible. I mean, our, our CLP, Lincoln CLP, passed uh, a, a motion calling for a Green New Deal ourselves, as we mentioned in the last uh, podcast. Um, it is still possible that it might uh, be counted in some other uh, in some other debate, because what happens at, at Labour Party conferences, um, if you're watching, for instance, the, the Liberal Democrats conference uh, this weekend, they have a much more uh, conventional way of um, debating um, policy motions. The motion goes to the floor, then there are a series of amendments debated, uh, those are voted on, um, and then the motion itself is voted on by the whole floor. That doesn't happen at Labour Party conference. What happens at Labour Party conference is there are uh, lots and lots of motions uh, submitted from CLPs, trade unions uh, and socialist societies and so on, because we're a huge federal organisation. Um, and so the argument goes that if you've got lots of duplicate motions like this, the most effective way to deal with those is to get all of the people who submitted motions on a similar topic uh, into one room uh, before uh, the motions come to the floor uh, and basically hash it out between them as to what the final wording will be. Um, and uh, that's called a compositing meeting. So then the final motion that emerges out of that becomes the composite motion and that motion then goes to the floor of conference. Um, and once it reaches that stage, it's almost always passed because uh, there's no way to amend it at that point, and presumably most people who submit that motion want, want it to come forward as policy. Um, so, like I say, it is possible that uh, our Green New Deal motion or elements of it or uh, elements of uh, motions from other organisations that have gone forward will still be on the agenda for conference. Um, but the final, I suppose the other thing to note, really, uh, is that the uh, agenda for conference doesn't actually get published until the conference actually starts. Uh, so uh, until we see that, um, we, can, we don't really know uh, what policies are going to be proposed. We, we know when some of the speeches are, we know when some of the policy debates are going to be, uh, we just don't necessarily know the content. Um, there will be a priorities ballot as well, of course. Uh, delegates again vote on that on the first day to decide which motions they want to see debated later in the week. Um, so, uh, as I say, uh, uh, I'm hoping for a positive conference. A lot of things suggest that it might not be, sadly. Um, but it, what's going to be really interesting about it, Ollie, is that. Obviously, it's the first uh, conference that 
uh, Keir Starmer has provided, presided over in person. I think there was an online conference of sorts last year, but it was it was just speeches. There were no there was no voting or uh, or, or actual debate. Um, so this is the first proper conference uh, since Keir Starmer took over, um, and it's really an opportunity for uh, the left really to show whether it's still organised at all in the party. Obviously, you've still got momentum knocking around. Uh, you've got the campaign for Labour Party democracy, which has historically been the core of the left at conference and usually the main coordinating body. They um, put out something called the Yellow Pages every morning, which is basically uh, an instruction leaflet for, for left-wing delegates suggesting uh, which way they should vote. Uh, and they're not unique in that. Of course, there are lots of other... Uh, uh, groupings uh, in the centre, the right of the party that do uh, more or less exactly the same thing um, and it's quite legitimate of course um, that all, all of them can do that but uh, from the perspective of the left, the CLPD uh, I think uh, uh, Bradley said just before we started recording they've already published something along those lines uh, so it's definitely going to be an interesting conference um, I'm not going as a delegate, but I'm traveling with the delega uh, delegation from Lincoln. Um, I will be mixing and mingling in, in the fringe events and, uh, uh, and uh, making connections for my CLP and also for Lincoln uh, in general. Uh, that's my job at conference, but I'll also be keeping an eye on what happens on the floor, which is certainly going to be very interesting. Yes, thank you for that insight, Callum. That was really interesting. Um... Yeah, so um, in my view, the, the Green New Deal should actually obviously be a, a center point of this conference. It was some of the most um, uh, popular and, and prevalent um, policy from the 2017 and 2019 Labour Manifesto. So it, it's very popular with the public and, you know, many people are behind this uh, and they want this. So it will be interesting in terms of, of policy, which is um, something we've had a distinct lack of in the, the Starmer leadership. Um, even... His uh, Keir Starmer's so-called uh, supporters has have have, um, have voiced their concerns over the direction of the party or, or, or lack thereof, um, I should say. Uh, so I heard one thing which will be happening is um, a speech by Keir Starmer himself, um, and he's written a, a I think it's a fourteen thousand word essay uh, to go along with that, um, which is it's <laughs> interesting. Um, and, you know, we'll have to keep it up in mind. But um, what do you think, Bradley? Can we expect to see some, some policy going forward from, from this conference? Uh, I mean, there'll certainly be policy. Whether it's any good or not is, is the question. Um, I, 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 I would normally look forward to attending um, a conference such as this. I was Lincoln's delegate in 2019 and, you know, I had a fantastic time there. Um, but it was also a very different time politically. Um, I have to say, I do not envy our delegates um, sitting for a 14,000-word speech from Keir Starmer uh, this time around. It doesn't particularly appeal to me. Um, ju just on the Green New Deal stuff, I mean, so, you know, the, the official reason given for, for why at least one of the Green New Deal motions, you know, they, I think there are a number circling, but the, the one from the Labour for a Green New Deal, you know, the official reason is that it, it was too wide-reaching. And in fairness, that that is something you know in terms of good governance and policy making that, that it often is 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 a reason to to look at a policy again if it's trying to cover too many areas or bringing too many things and, and not going into enough detail or not be specific enough about them. So yeah, that, that's fair enough. And um, 
there is an awful lot in that motion, um, you know, and it, and it does cover quite a lot of wide range, a wide ranging set of areas. My, my questions really are, you know, e- even if this is just simply the CAC is not interested in it and, and they think it's too wide ranging and that's the end of it. And there's no nefariousness from the leadership. You know, let, let's be generous and assume that there's not any dodgy goings on at all. I still think it's the wrong decision because, I mean, for me, one, yes, there's an argument that you, you want to keep policy specific so so it's effective and it's good policy making and it doesn't contradict other areas of policy and all the rest of it. So from a governance perspective, in general, that's a good thing to look for in a policy. However, I don't think it should be a reason to completely reject a policy from even entering conference floor. I think it's relevant criteria for a CRP to think about um, You know, when they're considering whether they want to put a motion forward to conference or not. I think it's relevant criteria for delegates to think about when they're deciding whether they want to pass the, the motion or not. I don't think it should be used as criteria for for a bureaucratic body. Yeah, fair enough, they're elected, but it, but it's a very small subset of the membership. Um, you know, to, to reject a policy outright, I don't, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's very democratic. I think that narrows debate. I think that's particularly obvious when it comes to something like a Green New Deal um, because the whole point of a Green New Deal, the whole appeal of a Green New Deal, is that it is a holistic approach to tackling the climate crisis, which is going to impact every single activity um, in society pretty much. Um, you, you cannot have a fair, just um, and effective response to the climate crisis without producing something that is wide-reaching. Um, so to me, it seems particularly short-sighted to not allow the Green New Deal through because it's too wide-ranging, because that's the whole point of it. It has to be wide-ranging, both to be effective at tackling climate change and also, I think, for us to be electorally successful. I think that, that for me, the Green New Deal should be absolutely for the centre of Labour policy going forward. Because it, it not only deals with the single biggest issue our, our species faces, but it does so in a way that can appeal to so many other sect- sections of society and get a mass movement behind it. So it can speak to, um, you know, in, in reskilling uh, and, and well-paid unionised jobs that, that will appeal to areas with low, low levels of employment. Um, it, it appeals to, to many uh, young people, millennials, Gen Zs, that are very passionate about tackling the climate crisis. Uh, in this one, it talks about things to do to do with um, in the in the Green New Deal motion that's been rejected. It talks about free broadband. It talks about social care. It talks about so many issues, and it and it it gives us that way of engaging all those different sections in the in the climate movement, dealing with their issues as well, dealing with the problems that those sections of society face, um, and it gives us a narrative. It gives us a story to tell about the way the world is at the moment and the way it could be. So for me, the Green Deal should absolutely be front and centre of, of Labour Party policy going forward. Um, and I'm actually, you know, if we, if we had a leadership team and, and, a, and a structure around them that was able to effectively sell that narrative and that set of policies, I, I'd be much more confident about our, our, you know, is going into a general election. So that that to me is why it's a shame and why I think it's short-sighted that the policy has not been allowed to conference for all. Um, I mean, th- there's other things we need to be looking out for um, d- during... Um, during conference, Callum, I don't know if you mentioned these, sorry, um, but around, you know, there's lots of constitutional changes being proposed by the leadership as well. Um, and I mean, I, I mean, I think some of these can, can sort of make sense. So there's um, uh, waivers for, I'm just looking at um, an article on, on Labour list by Sienna Rogers um, that details them, but uh, you know, there's a waiver to the one year membership requirement before you can stand to be a candidate. Uh, I can understand that there might be certain circumstances where uh, you, you would want someone that Maybe they've not been a member for a whole year, but you, there's, you know, they're, they're a really good candidate. They're a solid socialist and you, and you want them to stand for the party. So I can sort of understand that. Um, there's stuff about training for candidates as well. Um, 
under normal circumstances, again, I think it's quite good that we give training and, and support. I think it's probably one of the things that maybe puts people off um, running for certain positions in that yeah, they might not feel like they get enough support or training or, or, or equipped or empowered by the party. So again, in general, I'm not against the idea of introducing more, more training for candidates. Although under the current leadership, I'm a little concerned as to what that training will constitute. I'm a bit worried it might just end up being a bit of an indoctrination programme. Um, I think the thing that does concern me, though, is um, this, this this probationary period um, for for membership, which apparently, according to the Labour List article, some people have said already exists in practice anyway, um, but this is codifying it, apparently. Um, but the problem is, is that it gives powers to the General Secretary. Um, I'm trying to find the wording used in the article. Um, where is it? A probation period of it uh, rejected for any reason which the general secretary sees fit. Um, applications for members can be rejected for any reason which the general secretary sees fit. They've got that in quote marks, so I'm assuming they're quoting something from the party officially. That to me is deeply concerning. Yeah, there are obviously valid reasons in which to reject an, uh, a membership application, i.e., they're they're actually a Tory MP and they're, <laughs> yeah, they're trying to just join to to get some dirt on the Labour Party or whatever. But uh, yeah, they they are. Yeah, they've got a, a very recent and, and long history of, of deeply racist or sexist remarks on social media. There's obviously good reasons to reject application for membership. So if we're going to be rejecting application for membership for good reasons, why not list them? What, why, why give the General Secretary what is effectively carte blanche to, to reject anyone for any reason that he sees fit? That, to me, seems to be a massive overreach. Um, and, and that, yeah... If you're going to deny people the right to join a political party, you should be really clear what those reasons will be. So that that does worry me a little bit. Callum? Yeah, uh, let's turn to the administrative um, rule changes then rather than uh, policy because they could have a, a big impact in the long run. I, I think that... I, I yeah I, I'm like Bradley I'm a little bit conflicted about the stipulation that uh, candidates need to have specific training or some kind of training before they stand for election because yeah I, I do think uh, certainly with local government selections um, I think we have thrown a lot of people uh, into elected office underprepared for, for the role uh, over the years. Um, I like to think we're doing doing that better, uh, not, not, not getting better at throwing people in unprepared, but we're better at preparing people uh, locally. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, since Keir Starmer took over, it's been increasingly difficult to find people who are actually willing to stand at all, full stop. Um, and sometimes selections can happen quite late in the day. Uh, so this might create a, an unreasonable barrier. I think really, in a way, it comes down to how it's implemented. Um, it's much, much easier to say that parliamentary candidates uh, need to have some kind of training. Um, that's done in other... In fact, I'm pretty sure it's done in all other major political parties. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, um, that there's some or that there's some sort of scheme in place uh, for for training candidates, um, and that's not going to act as a barrier because people there will always be people willing to stand for parliament even in uh, seats 
that you know safe Tory seats because it's a huge honour to stand in a parliamentary election. Um, whereas in local government selections, there are a lot more seats to fill. First of all, um, it's not as prestigious, even though I would say, obviously, as a councillor, that it's uh, just as uh, honourable and it's just as much of a privilege um, to represent people and to be elected. There is no higher honour, in my view. Um, nevertheless, uh, you know, there's less money involved um, and for all of those reasons, it's sometimes uh, more difficult to get people to, to stand. Um, so on the other hand, though, they're also making it uh, easier for people to um, stand for election by uh, proposing that we waive the 12-month membership rule, uh, which has actually in recent history prevented people I've, I've personally thought would be good candidates uh, from running. The, the rule can, has often been waived as well, of course, typically to uh, to fill all women's shortlists. Um, so it's not hard and fast in, in and of itself. Um, so again, I think it depends how, how that is implemented. I'm, 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 I'm kind of, I, and again, I, when it comes to the training itself, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I trust the party. Uh, that its training will be. That's, that's what it comes down to, though, isn't it, really? Yeah. None of these really, I, I think, except for the general secretary being able to reject it for any reason, the mem membership application for any reason, that, yeah, I, that I to think me that's... is just starkly wrong. But the rest yeah. of them, it's more a case of mm. these might be okay in the right hands, but I don't necessarily trust the hands they're in at the moment. Yeah, I think um, for, for any reason, really, uh, it's, uh, you know, surely there has to be some sort of evidence or disciplinary uh, reason for someone to be rejected by the general secretary um you know uh, uh, and th this this was the other thing as well the, there's uh, there's been a lot a lot said about the proposal to have probationary membership i'm, I'm not sure why that's even being included in the, in the rule changes because you're already when you jo when the joint when you join the labor party right now you are uh, you got you effectively have provisional membership anyway. Um, what happens is you join uh, someone, you know, some staff member will look at your application, um, and if they can see something problematic, they will flag it up to the local constituency Labour Party um, and ask them for comment. Um, so uh, we have in the past had. People apply to be in the in the last few years. Um, people apply to join the Labour Party in Lincoln, who have stood against us in elections. I'm not going to go into who, who that was. Um, and then we have been asked for comments, and in some cases we've said no, they're okay. Um, you know, they they're good. Late, you know, they um, you know they they've effectively come in from the cold, and in some cases we've said no. Um, we don't think this person will be appropriate because of these reasons. Um, and the party usually follows whatever the local party will advise under those circumstances. So we already have some form of probationary membership. I'm not sure exactly what that is uh, supposed to achieve, um, really. Um, but yes, I think putting more power in the hands of the General Secretary. We, we've pa we passed the resolution um, at, at our executive committee 
last week that uh, our our delegates should vote against any centralization of power in the party. I think that's absolutely right. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how the rule changes are going to go. Generally speaking, although it's worth bearing in mind that if the NEC has agreed to uh, rule changes, generally speaking, they pass conference as well. So it's probably reasonable to assume that they will pass. Um, and we'll just have to see what the impact of that. But then again, they might they might not. Uh, it's obviously, we've, we had uh, Unite uh, Executive Committee mandate their delegates to vote against uh, the General Secretary's um, uh, appointment at conference. Um, so we might see them do that, something similar with these rule changes. We just don't know yet. Very interesting, both of you. Thank you for that insight. Um, so I guess my question would be about, about Labour Conference. As an outsider, um, I've never attended a Labour Conference. Uh, I very rarely pay attention to um, Labour Conferences in the past. Um, so, it, you know, all of this, all of the, the issues and the controversy that have gone on around uh, the leadership of the Labour Party and Keir Starmer, uh, it all seems very um, insular in, in some respects. Um, and that's to someone that's paying attention uh, and has an active interest in the Labour Party. Um, so my, my question is, um, what impact do you think this will have, um, if, if any, on the, the wider public, um, either of you? Bradley. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I always a little bit torn when people talk about interest. So I, I I know this isn't what you're doing, Ollie, but often when I hear people stand up and, and make speeches within the party about us being too insular and we need to stop spending time talking about this issue, often I think it's because they just don't want to talk about the issue anymore, or or they, they don't want that problem to be brought up. You know, for me, you've got to get your house in order before you can do anything else, right? So. Yeah, to some extent, I understand what Keir Starmer's doing. He's doing it in the complete opposite direction to what I would do. I think his overall impact on the party um, since taking, taking office has been to hound the left um, and, and to try and reduce democracy within the party. That's obviously the opposite of what I would seek to do. If I, if I was head of the Labour Party or in some position of significant influence, I, I probably would like to, to embark on a, a project of democratising the party and giving more power to the membership. Um but both those things are insular, aren't they? They're, they're both they're both to, whichever way you go on it. They're they're both looking at the internal structure of the party. And they're both very insular, um, and I I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing as long as long as you do something else with it afterwards. So once you've democratised the party, you then use the party to to spread a, a positive message, i.e. about the Green New Deal or something like that. So I don't think there's anything wrong in talking about insular things and and, and dealing with things in house because you've you've got to get your house in order before before you're able to be an effective machine. And clearly there are things wrong in the Labour Party, right? The, the Labour Party hasn't been functioning as an effective political machine in a very long time. Um, even under Corbyn, as much as I love the guy and, and the work that was done under Corbyn, even throughout those years that, that we were very ineffective in a number of areas. So clearly the party does need some internal reform. I very much disagree with the approach that Starmer has taken to that internal reform. But we do have to spend some time on internal issues. Um, however, all of that said, um, I, I don't think it should necessarily be the, the... I wouldn't want it to be the defining thing of, of my leadership if I was the leader of the party. And I think if you, if you ask people like Keir Starmer now uh, and anything that they think he feels particularly passionately about or anything that he is particularly known for, it will be attacking the left of his own party. Now, you might speak to some people and they think that's a good thing. You know, they might think Corbyn was awful... Uh, they think the left are, are all anti-Semites and they all should get kicked out of the party. Um, but it's still not exactly the best thing to be known for, primarily of 
how you've attacked other elements in your own party. Um, so I, I think, yeah, the, the extent to which there's been a void of direction of vision for external British politics from the Labour Party, matched with the amount of zeal and effort that's been put into to, to internal uh, factional issues, I think is not a healthy mix. I think it, it, it's left the party still looking very insular. It, it was a criticism that we had under the Corbyn years that we were too insular. Because, and I, I, from my point of view, that was because Corbyn, the Corbyn project was often attacked from within by elements of the party that could not abide by the socialist direction that we took. And I think that those same elements now are doing everything they can to ensure that a, a proper socialist takes ne- never takes the reins of the party again. Um, so it's not a good look, basically. As much uh, you know, as I said, if it was me in the leadership, I would be focusing on some internal issues, um, but I would also be trying to offer a, a you know transformative vision for for the rest of the country as well. Um, but what we have at the moment is the leadership is doing one and not the other, um, and and it's le- it has left us still looking very infighting and very insular, and like we don't really have a huge amount to offer. Yeah, that's interesting. As an outsider, um, you know, it looks it looks bad. It, it just looks bad um, having all the the conflict going on um, and all the controversy and you know the accusations leveled against Starmer. Um, it doesn't look good to the wider public. So you know, personally, I think a lot of people think that they wouldn't trust um, you know Keir Starmer to run his own party or um, or, or anything else. Never mind the country. What, what do you think, Callum? I think that I firmly uh, agree, really, with uh, Bradley in the sense that you've ultimately you've got to be able to put your own house in order, and that requires internal debate and discussion. the The fact is that unless you're uh, unless you're political politically minded like us, you're probably not going to be paying much attention to what's going on at Labour Party conference. You're probably not paying much attention to what's going on at Tory Party conference. What would be the point anyway? It's entirely stage managed, um, more so even than ours. Um, you know, I doubt many people even know that Liberal Democrat conference is going on at the, uh, as we speak. Um, why would they? <laughs> um, so... I think when it comes to conferences, much like when we are when when you when you discuss you know so-called Westminster stories or Whitehall stories in the press, um, I don't think that they have much of an impact on the public, or if they do, it's fairly temporary, because at the at the end of the day, as we saw in 2017, for instance, um, there, there was a huge media narrative uh, around that time making the Labour Party look like it was fighting internally and all factional and so on, and very, very anti-Corbyn as it always was. And yet, when it came to the election itself, it became about the manifesto, it became about the campaign, um, it became about what the government is doing. So when it comes to the actual election, you know, those things m- matter much more. And you won't be prepared to actually have an effective manifesto or campaign if you don't go through the process of political wrangling uh, that uh, happens uh, in CLPs, in local government forums, in, uh, in, in labour groups, uh, in the PLP, and also you know, on the NEC and at conference, and that applies in, in any political party. Um, so, okay, 
no, of course it doesn't look good. But to, I think to my mind, as, as Bradley suggests, it's often an excuse, I think, for uh, people who don't want to discuss issues to try and persuade people that they shouldn't be discussed, uh, even though, you know, that there are probably necessary amendments coming forward at, the, at this conference. Um, not all of them are bad, um, and they need to, and they need to, uh, and they need to be discussed and debated. Um, there are rule changes not just coming from the NEC, but coming from CLPs as well, of course. So they need and, and other and, and and trade unions and socialist societies. Those will need to be debated. Uh, so that's that's got to be the focus of this conference. And the, the, if the price we pay is that for a while we look like we're a little bit divided and infighty, well, that just that just has to be borne, I think, because that's just the process of politics. I'm afraid. Uh, Bradley, you want to come back? Yeah, just to say, in general, I agree with what Callum's saying. Um, you know, you, it, both getting your house in order and then also you know just it, it's good to be able to have healthy constructive political debate w- within any movement i think that, that that's absolutely crucial to any movement being uh, relevant and effective and and to have really scrutinize its own ideas and, and what it's trying to do it, that, that's absolutely key however uh, be looking beyond conference i'm not necessarily commenting anything that's going on at conference here but just sort of a wider look at the party over the last 18 months I don't, I don't think we've been having particularly constructive debates about substantial areas of policy, particularly within the party. I don't, don't know if that's necessarily the thing that we're seen to be doing either. I think a lot of it's become quite factional. Uh, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think the, the, the internal disputes within the party over the last 18 months have been particularly healthy or constructive ones necessarily. Interesting. Yeah, thank you both. Uh, and just to finish off, one final question on this section. Um, I understand that there's going to be a vote on whether um, wh- whether you think David Evans should be uh, Secretary of the Labour Party. How will you be voting, uh, Callum? Well, as I say, I don't get a vote. I'm not a delegate. Um, however, I I think I will be encouraging delegates, not just my own, uh, to vote against his appointment. Uh, when it comes to it, um, if nothing else, really, just on the basis of pure competence, um, it's not really uh, political for me at all. The, the political leader of the Labour Party is Keir Starmer. The general secretary is meant to be the head of the administration, the head of the, you know, the head of the professional staff which run the bureaucracy of the party, and on that basis, I think he, he, he's useless. Frankly, um, we have seen no improvement in the campaign technology that the party uses. Uh, won't go into de- uh, obvious details, but we're still, you know, uh, we haven't seen any improvements there. Um, well, the party's bankrupt, or supposed to be bankrupt. It's certainly uh, not. In fairness, obviously, you've had two general elections uh, of late, so that's obviously not not going to have helped. But we've also been deliberately turning away uh, trade unions, who are our main funders. Um, There's been failed attempts to attract private donors. Um, That hasn't worked. So, And now they're uh, laying off staff, who we badly need, uh, to help us uh, to run the party. It's sometimes quite difficult to get hold of uh, someone 
uh, actually, even as a, as a CLP secretary. So, I, I, and the other, th and of course, it's difficult to I ignore the points that last year I was a signatory as well uh, to the petition to David Evans, uh, pointing out that he was putting myself and many of my colleagues uh, in between members and the party by uh, forcing us to rule out of order or to not put forward motions uh, on Jeremy Corbyn and, and on other issues uh, that the leadership just didn't like. Um, and even uh, forcing us to uh, re report people and so on um, and be suspended ourselves. Some of these motions, of course, were tested in court and those uh, members won their cases. So it's not uh, a good look at all uh, for the party. Um, and I think from a professional point of view, he has failed as a general secretary. Some of these problems, uh, he's, the guy's only been in place for 18 months, to be fair. Uh, some of these problems, uh, you know, are not all David Evans' fault, in fairness. Um, but I would have liked to see over the last 18 months a lot more uh, progress being made. Jenny Formby, before David Evans had set up um, uh, a technology working group, uh, and that was working with CLP secretaries to improve uh, the, the campaigning methods that the party uses. Progress on that has been absolutely glacial since David Evans uh, took charge. We've had very little communication with him as, as a group, uh, the CLP secretaries who are actually quite well organized uh, in, in, in the UK. Um, and yeah, we've, we've had one meeting with him collectively. Um, some, uh, some CLP secretaries, quite senior ones who've been around for a long time, a couple of them on the NEC, uh, like Anne Black, for instance, have had more meetings with him as, as you might expect. Um, but we've only had one sort of summit, uh, uh, Q a session, if you like, with the guy, um, and apart from that, nothing has happened. At conference, incidentally, there is supposed to be a CLP secretary's meetup, to, uh, I think, on the Monday evening, uh, which I will be attending, um, mainly to meet, meet all of the people that I've been talking to on social media for the last uh, year and a bit. Um, I, I think that will be fascinating. But David Evans is supposed to be there, assuming he is confirmed. Um, so that could be quite interesting. Um, but I personally feel that he shouldn't be just on 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 a uh, uh, on a professional basis. I think he's failed as a general secretary. Whether that vote will uh, succeed or not, I don't know. Obviously, it's quite notable that Unite the Union uh, has decided to vote against his appointment. That does open up the possibility, given they are one of the largest delegations at conference, uh, that he could be rejected if it went to a card vote. I know the left, uh, sorry, I know the right want, uh, want there to be a card vote in a way because they want an opportunity to demonstrate the weakness of the left um, in, in, a, in a vote. Um, so, I, I mean, I kind of agree. I think, uh, I think it was Aaron Bastani uh, the other day who said that, you know, the left should probably try and remove him, but also maybe not make a, a big all or nothing deal about it if he doesn't go down because... It, at the end of the day, there will also be a lot of people thinking maybe this isn't uh, a battle that we want to fight. 
um, and this will cause more disruption than it, than it will uh, gain. I, I disagree with that. I think that the Labour Party's um, bureaucracy trundles on um, and it's working pretty badly at the moment. And to be honest, we can definitely do better and the only way to do that is for a conference to reject him. Uh, so we'll see what happens when it comes to the conference floor. As I say, I expect him to be appointed, but he might not be, and that would be unprecedented uh, in Labour Party history. So you, you might see history being made this weekend. Very interesting. Bradley, what do you think? Yeah, just just checking a column, really. I, th- I, mean, I mean, it's pretty damning, really, when you can't... I can't think of a single metric that you could measure the party's success by um, and, and think that we're doing well. And like I've said, you know, not all of that's necessarily the fault of the general secretary. Um, you know, the political leadership of the party has to bear a lot of that responsibility. Um, and, and ultimately, how the party fares is a collective responsibility on all of us. Um, but certainly, the performance of the general secretary has a significant influence on those metrics. And I, I can't think of a single way to measure success of the party in which I think actually we've, we've improved um, under Starmer and Evans. Um but, and, and I mean, for me, the, the CLP stuff around Jeremy Corbyn, that, that's reason enough alone to get rid of the guy. You know, it was absolutely outrageous that CLP's internal ability to internally debate and discuss issues was being um, attacked by, 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 by the National Party. It's an absolute disgrace. So for that reason alone, I would say get rid of the guy. Um, I, I think it's unlikely he'll go. Um, I'd be very happy to see him go if he did. But I, I think it's probably unlikely he'll go at this point. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you both. Um, And we'll move on now to some uh, international politics. Uh, So perhaps one of the most interesting developments in international uh, relations in in quite some time. Um, There's been fury in Paris, uh, Australia's decisions uh, to tear up the plans to buy a French-built fleet of submarines. so uh, on Thursday, there was an announcement between uh, the UK, the US and Australia. which uh, basically says that they will form an alliance and uh, cooperate on each other, uh, with each other to um, get Australia some, some nuclear-powered submarines. And um, I do want to make the distinction here because uh, I had to do some reading into it to find out. That, that's not uh, um, submarines which are, are capable of, of nuclear weapons. It's, it's nuclear-powered submarines. But still, uh, Australia will be the seventh country in, in the world to... Um, to get them, so that, that's quite a significant development, and um, it's it's provoked international backlash on on the submarine pact um, about concerns that it could provoke a, a conflict with with China uh, and prompt co- conflict in the Pacific. So obviously, China has denounced the deal and thinks it should be withdrawn. Uh, France is obviously very upset that um, Australia has uh, kind of reneged on their agreement uh, with, with submarines prior. Um, and it's, it's led to some very interesting questions. One was asked by uh, former Prime Minister Theresa May uh, in, in the Commons, uh, basically saying, what, what do you think the UK's response would be if, if China attempted to invade Taiwan? Um, so basically, this alliance is, has been formed um, to um, get a stronger Western stance on, on China and kind of force it uh, back a little bit in some of its activities, uh, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. So um, there's been some controversy recently about um, China um, kind of claiming islands um, in their their part of the world. Um, And obviously there's the long-standing conflict between 
uh, Taiwan. Obviously, Taiwan wants autonomy from China um, and to be recognized as its own country. So, yeah, it's 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 been interesting actually to read up on this and uh, a very significant development in my opinion. Um, so, I'll ask uh, we'll ask Callum, what do you think this will mean for um, international relations in in terms of Western relations with with China? Well, this is one of those things that's. Uh just sort of come out of the blue. Uh, it was certainly a surprise for France, wasn't it? Because they were in the process of negotiating their own contract with uh, Australia to sell them some nuclear-powered submarines. Um, the uh, And they, they are, of course, uh, absolutely hopping mad about it, as you could probably expect, because uh, it came out of the blue for them. Uh, they said that trust has been damaged between themselves and Australia and they've come out and said, well, we've got contracts, uh, which means that there are exit clauses that Australia might have to pay and so on and so forth. So an uh, interesting move from Australia, really, to uh, effectively piss off one of, one of their uh, other key allies, uh, although perhaps from their perspective, uh, the Anglophone nations of, of, and, and uh much more militarized nations of the UK and the US are probably more important. Perhaps there was some diplomatic pressure applied uh, in that regard. Um, there is uh, the, the point that you made about um, these being nuclear-powered submarines that are being actual nuclear submarines uh, is notable, of course, because uh, Australia does have primary legislation which bans the use of nuclear weapons uh, in, uh, in Australia. Um, I've been a bit surprised to see that there hasn't, uh, appears not to have been too much controversy in Australia about those uh, submarines being nuclear powered. I guess most people, most politicians, I guess, are, are okay with it there. Um, but yes, it is uh, it's interesting because uh, until a few years ago, Australia seems to be aligning itself more and more with China, uh, mainly because. Australia is one of the biggest coal suppliers to China's enormous economy. So this, this is kind of the way it works. Australia mines coal, it flogs it to China. China produces things which uh, Australians then buy and use and obviously are used around the world. But that relationship might change, of course. There's increasing environmental pressure uh, within, uh, within Australia, especially with all of the wildfires to try and move away from coal production, their government isn't listening at the moment, they're still very much wedded to coal, um, but they might also be aware that that's uh, a finite resource uh, and that, that trading relationship might not always exist. Uh, nevertheless, they are still probably always going to be major trading partners just because of their sheer proximity, the amount that China produces. Um, and obviously China as well, you know, if you want to talk in military terms, probably could invade Australia before uh, anyone else has even reacted to it. Um, so it, it is a bit of a risk from from uh, Australia's point of view. Uh, then again, they could say, turn around and say, well, we're already part of this Five Eyes alliance, uh, which obviously includes Canada and New Zealand as well. So this is just strengthening that. It doesn't really change that much. Um, of course, China's not going to be in favour of it because it's plainly an, an anti-China move. 
um, uh, uh, designs to try and combat uh, their increasing militancy in the South China Sea. Um, whether it would lead to actual armed conflict, I think we're very far from that. Um, China, of course, has called this a, a Cold War move or uh, slipping back into a Cold War mentality. Uh, but then again, is that really, you know, uh, not non-inevitable? Um, Russia has declined as a power in the world. We had a period of time where we were being taught at school, those of us who are studying politics, that the United States was now the unipolar, uh, you know, the, hege the global hegemon, the world's policeman. That didn't last very long. Uh, of course, they fucked it up in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and then obviously uh, China obviously has, has risen significantly as I think it's probably going to overhaul the American economy very soon if it hasn't already. Um, and it's a huge military power, so it has to be taken seriously. And then really at that point, you're back to uh, very, very old debates about the balance of powers, aren't you? You know, this is the sort of stuff that goes back to the concerts of Europe and, and even beforehand the idea that you that very powerful nations need to be balanced out to essentially uh, discourage them from from uh, fighting over their interests uh, that applied to uh, the 20th century cold war it will probably apply to the rivalry which i think is inevitable between uh, china and the united states we are really in the hands of the diplomats here um China probably doesn't want a war with the United States, probably doesn't want a war with Australia. What they want is to uh, be able to uh, secure control over their uh, economic and social sphere in Southeast Asia. That includes the, uh, the South China Sea, for instance. That probably includes Taiwan. Um, and uh, even if not direct control of uh, Taiwan, then as much leverage as they can gain over it. Uh, equally, no one really wants a war with China because China is massive, well-resourced and has nuclear weapons. So it's uh, very difficult to predict the future. Um, per my personal view is that really this, uh, uh, this uh, AUKUS deal probably is not going to change very much. Um, it's probably been more significant actually for Franco-Australian relations than it has been for Chinese-Australian relations. Um, it is a very bold move uh, by Australia uh, to sort of move away a little bit from China and much more towards um, the UK and the US. But given that they're an Anglophone country uh, with, you know, similar democratic and uh, and political structures it's probably not that surprising and I'm, I'm fairly certain that china will have factored that into their strategic thinking as well so uh, it is significant uh, could be more significant as time goes on but i'm not sure it's going to change much in the in the immediate future yeah, I think I think you're right, um, and it is certainly quite interesting from an Australian point of view. Um, you can see why I think they might want to uh, solidify the relationship. I guess as as the UK and the US, you know, they've had a long-standing um, relationship, which uh, you know since the since post World War Two, um, you know, sharing te technology and and intelligence with each other. Um, 
so you can see why they they'd kind of want in on that, I guess, in, in some respects. Um, and I'm sure it's it's probably quite um, popular, I guess, uh, in, in Australia. Um, and you know, it might be quite popular here. Who knows? Is this um, is this what Boris Johnson meant by a, a global Britain? What, what do you think, Bradley? Is this a vote winner? I mean, uh, my expertise when it comes to international relations is quite poor, but it sounds to me like everyone just needs to chill out a little bit, really. Um, I mean, I mean, so I mean, France and China presumably have got nuclear-powered submarines, correct? Uh, I believe so. Yes. Yeah, but they're kicking off about someone else having them. Um, so you know, first of all, chill out a little bit. If you if you've got them, other people have them. Uh, this idea of different shifting alliances and things, I I don't know. Uh, my 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 patience for things like this in international relations. I mean, obviously, people are going to start forming alliances so they're better protected against China. You know, you can't become a massively powerful economy and military force. Um, and uh, and then be shocked that that people enter into into alliances to ensure their protection against you. Like you it's, it's just all a bit childish, really, to some extent. You know, it, it, you know, feigned shock that people might actually seek out uh, partnerships to better protect their interests against your overwhelming influence in the in the in the region. So I I don't know. If, it's naive, maybe, but I'm like, you know, why can't we just have a United Nations with a bit more teeth? But there is a place of resolution for these. I mean, in theory, that's what it is. Yeah, the United Nations floor is, is a place for uh, for us to stop wars. You know, it's it's a place for diplomacy to rule. But I, I don't think in practice it manages to always do that very effectively. Um, so may, may, maybe as as the century develops, maybe we need to look at uh, places where we can uh, resolve things in a more diplomatic manner. And I, I mean, I think it depends on democratising those countries themselves as well, because it's quite easy for elites in various countries to ignore the United Nations and, and, and to, to to press on in, you know, if they if they calculate that it's within their their interests of either the country or, or their own political careers to, to, to take a less diplomatic route, then they will. Um so it's a, it's yeah we we need to democratize from the top and the bottom really don't we we, we need countries to be more democratized so uh, I I'm a I'm a believer that you know if you if you democratize more countries I mean proper democracy not just you know the, the bare bones of a democracy I mean democratized economies properly accessible and, and accountable government that sort of thing then I, then I think you know our conflict becomes much less likely um, in, in that case and then if you've also got a better system for for countries to uh, to resolve disputes at the top level as well that is also more democratic and more transparent and and, and all the rest of it. Then then these the, these sorts of I don't know like yeah, well they're in an alliance with so and so and they've got these things that we shouldn't have that they shouldn't have. You know, it becomes less of a, a a fear of armed conflict that comes out of it. But that's my that's my one I want to 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 resolving diplomatic disputes. Um, you can see we're well outside of my area of expertise at this point, though. Can I can I just can I just ask Bradley a question? Did you say that uh, if some if one person's got uh, nuclear weapons, you might as well let the other one? Have no, because they're if you listen to it at the start, they're not nuclear weapons, are they? They're nuclear powered submarines. Oh right, yes, of course. But also, no, but I also do stand over that in terms of. I think it's really hypocritical for us as a nuclear state to say other states can't be nuclear. I don't think anyone should be nuclear. I would get rid of all nuclear weapons tomorrow, um, except for maybe a small reserve held by the UN to stop an alien attack, like an Independence Day or something like that. Other than, other than that, I, think <laughs> I would get rid of all nation state. You never know. There's a small chance. So let's not go or, or a meteor, perhaps. Yeah, 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 yeah something like that. 
Um, but other than that, I, I would be very happy to see a world without nuclear weapons. Um, but I think it's really hypocritical for a country to say, oh, well, we've got nuclear weapons because we're, we're a stable state. I mean, really, is the UK a stable state? Look at us at the moment. Um, but then turn around and say other oh, countries can't have them. I, I, I think that's really hypocritical. So, so you're sim- simultaneously a unilateralist and in favour of nuclear proliferation. Well, my preference is unilateralism. Yeah, yeah. My preference is none. But I just, I just don't think there's a moral. If you accept that your country, if you're, if you're of the position that it's okay for your country to have nuclear weapons, you can't morally deny another state that right. Is what I'm saying. But, but I, I don't think it's okay for us to have nuclear weapons in the first place. Yes, and uh, I think we can probably all agree on on nuclear disarmament in general. Um, and it's it's worth reminding, um, you know, we live in one of the most peaceful peaceful times in history um, in terms of conflict and war, um, and it's, it's it's sometimes easy to forget that. So I think it is a bit uh, alarmist to go by Theresa May's lines and say, well, would we be dragged into a war against China uh, to protect Taiwan and stuff like that? You know, we're, I think we're a long way off that, uh, as we've said. And maybe um, I was a little harsh on the UN there. Maybe they're doing their work. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I think it's all a matter of uh, interpretation, maybe. But um, we'll, we'll leave it there anyway, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Um, next time, I hope we have, um, um, after we've had Labour Conference next week, we will be doing, um, no doubt, a, a kind of response to that and to talk through what happened um, and any controversies, but we'll see. Um, Yes, yeah, so it's a goodbye from me, your host, Ollie Warwin, and it's a goodbye from Callum. Goodbye, Ollie. Stay safe, everyone. Join the trade union. Take care. And goodbye from Bradley. Bye, everyone. Join a union um, and don't proliferate nuclear arms. <laughs> Words to live by. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>